Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is John. If you do know me, apologies. Um, before we go any further, let's just once again invite and acknowledge that God is here with us. Do, we, do you guys believe that his spirit is here with us? Let's acknowledge it, okay? Let's bow, bow your heads with me, please. Lord, you're the great God. You're the great creator. You made us and you loved us so much you came and died on the cross for us. And we know you're here with us now because you promised where two or three are gathered in your name, you're there. So, Lord, we welcome you. I pray as I speak, Lord, that people will focus on the things you want them to focus on, that, they, that people may hear your message, not mine. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Everyone says, okay, let's see if we can get some slide action going. Oops, we've gone too far. Uh, first of all, I need to introduce a new member of our family. And it's not the boy. We've got, a, we've got two curly people in this photo, and it's, we've got a cute little Georgie dog, which I just thought I'd show you because it's like, ah. Now, I want to start off, though, with a story about the other individual in this photo. This is our youngest son, William. He is a three-year-old going on four, and we love him so much. About, I'm not sure if it's six or eight weeks ago, a Saturday morning, 10 to 8, we were all dressed and about ready to go. Jess, my lovely wife, was singing, so we had to be here early for practice. Everyone's dressed up. The boys and Jess look amazing, and I'm dressed. And as the two big boys are in the car, keen to see their friends, belted in. Jess has just done Curly's hair. That's what we call William. I can't, can't remember why we call him Curly. Um, just done his hair. Jess is going to the car and William vomits all over the floor, the basin and the sink. And I'm looking down at it. He's got it on his clothes. And look at Jess. You're singing. You're pumped. The boys are ready, you go and I'll clean up this. So they dash off to church. And I spent the next hour with this beautiful little boy, giving him cuddles, cleaning him up, cleaning up the mess, holding the bucket as he had another three incidents, so to speak. And it, and it makes you wonder, how can so much come out of something so small? <laughs> and then you look at their face. Now, I was trying to figure out what's going on. Now, I need to tell you something about Curly. Oh, William. Sorry, I, we call him Curly and William. I need to tell you something about Curly. He has got a superpower that you may not be aware of. Like his mother, he has the superpower of being a celiac. So that, that means that if you insert the inappropriate amount of gluten, you get projectiles. And so I'm trying to figure out why has he just vomited everywhere? Is he sick? Are we all going to get it? Or has he eaten something? Now, the night before, we had the elders over and we had some yummy cheesecake and Jess, being a celiac, was smart enough to knock off the top of a piece of cheesecake and she left a base. And it sat there all night and the next morning I'm looking at this base and I'm thinking, that's a little bit smaller than it was last night. 
And I said to William, did you eat some of the cheesecake? You know that had gluten in it. No. Are you sure? I'm not wanting to get you in trouble. I just want to know why you're sick. Did you eat any of the cheesecake? No. Because if you didn't, I might need to take you to the doctor and to hospital to find out what it is. Do you like hospital? No. And I just sat there giving him a cuddle because he was pretty weak still. And it's just so cute. About two minutes later, he looks up at me in his little three-year-old voice and says, I might have eaten some cheesecake. <laughs> and it brings tears even to my eyes now because he's, he's very smart. He will tell us, I'm not allowed to eat that. It's got gluten in it. It's so cute. Now, the reason I tell you this story is sometimes in life, the things that we do, things that we choose that make our lives difficult or damage our relationships. And sometimes we can't move on or improve things without admitting what's going on. The last eight weeks or thereabouts, we have been making our way through the book of Nehemiah in a series on Nehemiah. Now, before we get on to chapter 9, where I'm meant to be focused, I want to take us right back to the start of the book of Nehemiah in the very first chapter. Everything we have looked at in the last eight weeks about Nehemiah is built on these couple of verses. The building of the wall, the releasing the slaves, all these kind of things would not have happened if it was not for this, um, what we're reading here. Nehemiah, when he heard about how bad things were in Jerusalem, how it had no wall, he sat down and he wept for some days. He mourned and he fasted and he prayed to the God of heaven. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you, God. Israel had been into captivity because they had just told God they weren't interested anymore. Nehemiah, when he heard how bad things were, they were, they were back from captivity, but they were still living in dire straits. And so Nehemiah prays. He confesses. Now, why would he confess the sin of other people? Why would he do this? Now, before we go any further, I want to de try and de demystify the word sin before we go any further, okay? So the Bible, what is sin? The Bible tells us that sin is a transgression of the law, or you break what's written in the commandments, you break what's in the law, and that is sin. But let's look at it in a more tangible idea. Let's look at how it impacts you. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so he cannot hear. When you do something called a sin, it creates a barrier that separates you from God. So when you're trying to connect with God, and you've got something you're carrying around that you know is creating a barrier, it's harder to connect with God. I know this from experience. Does anyone out there know... Anyone else out there know this from experience? You know you're doing something wrong in your life and you can feel a barrier between you and God. Can I hear it? Yes? So this is why sin is an issue. And this, this is why Nehemiah realised that the children of Israel, the Judeans, when they were back in Jerusalem, were still in dire straits because they were still doing the same things they'd been doing before. The, the temple may be rebuilt, 
but they still hadn't moved on. Now, let's, I want to explore the idea of sin creating a barrier. Um, my degree, when I did it, many years ago, was um, in economics and finance, so very little face time. I was also working full-time as a cleaner at a hospital. So uni was very busy. Full-time study, full-time work, but it was a lot of fun. I had a good bunch of friends I worked with. And the second last year of uni, I decided to start growing my hair long. I'd peroxide at the top of my hair. I, I, I worked with a bunch of South, South Americans and South Africans. We all peroxide our hair. So mine was just a couple of shades. Some of the guys went drastically different and looked great. Um, some of them had to put so much peroxide on, guess what happens to the hair? But anyway, we all went deep blonde, and then I just thought, ah, oh, I'm in uni, I'll keep growing my hair. And did this for the rest of uni, then I went backpacking the year after uni. I went around Europe for a year, and guess what? Backpacking, it's great to have long hair. So I'm walking around with like, the, the hair down to roughly here, it's sort of Jesus hair, like sort of wavy, blonde because I'm in the sun all the time. Surprisingly how many people came up to me and say, Sprechen Sie Deutsch, because I'm a big guy with blonde hair right down my waist, and they think I'm German. Um, now, when I got back to Australia, I needed to get back in and start getting a career job. I didn't want to be a cleaner at the hospital anymore, and my degree was economics and finance. I wanted to work in a finance company. Now, the pinnacle for me was, and I'll just show you a progression in my life. I graduated high school from Macquarie College. I studied and graduated from Macquarie Uni, and I'm in finance, so I'm thinking, what is one of the best finance companies in the world, let alone in Sydney? I'm thinking, Macquarie Bank. Let's go and try to get a job. Now, I'm pretty smart, but Macquarie Bank's got a lot of really smart people that just make me look like a pygmy. But let's, let's put the best foot forward for the interview. I've got three sisters, one's in HR, and they say, we love your long hair. Just put it in a ponytail. Go along to the interview. It will work because we have people we work with that, have, that are men that have long hair. It's not a problem in the workforce today. And I'm sort of thinking, eh, finance, a little bit conservative. Sister HR saying, keep the hair. So, I go in this interview, there's two Macquarie Bank guys, I'm wearing a suit, I've got my hair pulled back and it's in a ponytail. So, everyone, put your hands up like this. Can we all do it? If you think I got the job, hold your thumb up as a yes. If you think I didn't get the job, hold your thumb down. Okay, so did I get the job at Macquarie Bank wearing a ponytail too? Did anyone say yes? Oh, we've got a yes over here. I didn't get the job. Surprise! Why? Is there anything wrong with a guy having long hair? Well, some would say yes, but I work with a lot of guys that do their job really well and they've got long hair, but guess what? In a conservative industry like finance, particularly all that time ago, you don't start your job with a ponytail. You may grow it once you've got it, but you're about giving signals. So, that ponytail for me in itself may not have been a problem for someone else, but it was a barrier to Macquarie Bank. Do we get the idea? So when you've got something in your life, even something for someone else that might be good, that is creating a barrier between you and God, 
that's sin. Okay? So Nehemiah is confessing the sins, the things his forebears are doing. Now, the Bible promises us if we confess our sins, the things that create a barrier between us and God, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. What does that mean? If we do that, they're gone. The barrier is gone and we can connect with God. Over to Nehemiah 8, 9 and 10. The walls have been built. The people are there. They realise that they have been doing a lot of things that are not healthy and that they're hurting God. But guess what? These people have been in a foreign country. They have not, been, they, they have not ac- had access to the Bible, as we call it today. They have not known. So at this time, Ezra is called by the people, bring out the book of the law of Moses. So that's the first five books, and read it to us. Look in the red. He read from daybreak, from no- daybreak to noon. That's a long reading. I don't think many people had ADHD back in those days. They read the law. And the people, as they heard, they started fasting. They started weeping. They put sackcloth on because they found out for the first time what had been wrong. Why our forebears had gone to captivity. Now, the Bible said, if you worship other gods, if you sacrifice your children to other idols, if you mistreat the poor and the foreigners, if you desecrate my Sabbath, if you steal and do violence, you are effectively telling me that you don't want to be in the covenant anymore. You have sinned. These guys didn't know that and they started reading it and understanding for the first time. So they started understanding and then they stood in their places, they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read the book of the law of God for a quarter of the day and they spent another quarter in confession. Now this may sound a little bit boring, but this is profound for Israel because they were in the process of changing from being in a situation where they were totally against God to moving towards God. Now we actually, it actually moves on just after that verse to say that the whole nation that was in Jerusalem, the leaders, the princes, the elders of the people and the people themselves made a covenant. We will keep your Sabbath. We will not hold slaves. We will look after the poor. We will present our offerings. We will do what the law says. So just looking at this, and I want to propose that this is a biblical model of, of um, confession. In this situation, we see the people hear or they read God's word. They become aware of the barriers in their life. They become aware of sin. They confess and pray, and they then renew the covenant. Another word would be there is a revival or renewal in their religious experience. Okay. So this is a nation that's gone from being God-haters to making, renewing the covenant with God. A whole nation has turned around. I've got a couple of photos here. 1930s. Who knows the guy on that side? Hitler. Hitler. 
And I won't ask you if he's a good or bad man because there's in no situation ever where he is a good man. And I put Stalin, Lenin and Mao in the same bucket. There's no situation where someone that kills that many people can ever be considered a good person. On this side, it's Winston Churchill. Now, the 1930s was an interesting time in England. Um, the Depression was there. There wasn't as much money. And also, England was still fresh from World War I, where over a million people had died. England did not want to go to war. And year on year, the military spending went down. Year on year. Because there's not as much money, and there's a big movement. We will not go to war at any cost. Now, there were some people that spoke out against this, but not many. And in 1933... Hitler came to power in Germany. And people in England started apologising for what he was doing and making excuses. So when he invaded the Rhineland, he's just taking back um, territory that was German. When he remilitarised, it was unfair of us to actually stop them having tanks and, and aircraft. When um, his, his stormtroopers and the like were reducing the Jewish population to second-class citizens and stealing their property, the Jews bring it on themselves, was the excuse given. And just doing a, probably an inappropriate tangent, but sadly, there's too much of that kind of stuff going on now as well um, in the world where people bring their own stuff on. There's no excuse for that. But people were apologising for Hitler. When he invaded um, Austria, oh, it's German territory, it's okay. We want war at no cost. This was called appeasement, and, it, and the pinnacle of appeasement was 1938, when the Prime Minister before this guy on the right, Neville Chamberlain, and the French Prime Minister hopped on a plane and flew to Munich, and they met with um, that clown over there. He was wanting some more territory, and so without even asking anyone, they said, we will chop up Czechoslovakia and we will give you part of this. And without even asking the Czech people, they chopped up part of Czechoslovakia and they gave it to Hitler. And Neville Chamberlain came back with a little piece of paper saying, this is a great, one of the greatest moments in British history. We have peace in our time. And you know what the British people did? The whole nation pretty much was excited. He got the equivalent of a ticker tape parade. He got to hang out on the balcony of Buckingham Palace and the massive crowd was waving because we want war at no cost. But there were a few voices and one in particular that said, you have to start investing in modern aircraft. You have to start um, investing in tanks because you are going to war whether you want it or not. Winston Churchill was hated. He was called a warmonger. He would be as welcome at a university campus as Israel Flower would be today. He was hated. People threw stuff at him. They treated him nasty. Now, he was not just speaking from his opinion. He was no longer in government, but he was in parliament, and he spent the best part of the 1930s researching a book series. Four-volume book, which I want to get my hands on, but... It's like three, four thousand dollars. Mount Baden, uh, sorry, not Mount Baden, the Duke of Marlborough in his time 
is a story about one of his ancestors. Several hundred years before, Louis XIV was conquering all of Europe and wanted it all, similar to what Churchill was. And he was researching it, and he, he was traveling all around Europe to do his research, to see the battlefields. And he had contacts he was communicating with. And Winston Churchill, in the 30s, before the war, probably had better details of what was happening in Germany and the surrounding countries than the British Foreign Service did. He was really well connected. And his research on what happened the last, one of the last times there was a megalomaniac that wanted to dominate Europe, he could see the signs. He could see what was coming. And what did he get for talking about it? He was hated. He was shunned. He was treated like a pariah. Two years later, this is a very famous cartoon. Bottom corner, over here, this is a caricature of Winston Churchill. Everyone else in, in the, the, the front two rows are all the, the members of parliament and all the haters that had been hating on him over the 1930s. Two years later, on the 10th of May, he was asked to be Prime Minister. That was the day that Hitler invaded France, Belgium and Netherlands, the last three countries left in, in Europe, and they all fell within six weeks. Finally, England woke up, and the whole nation overnight turned 180 degrees. We don't want peace at any cost. We need to stop that clown. We don't want to go to war, but we need to do our bit. The whole nation turned. And that's what happened in the time of Nehemiah. The people realised that they had been doing stuff that was separating them from God, that was hurting their fellow citizens, and was not representative of what God wanted. There are other instances in the Bible where a whole nation turned. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, we read about good King Josiah. The people... Had, did not have the word of God. They'd lost it. It was lost in the depths of the temple. And the people before Josiah had been sacrificing their children to pagan idols. Been, the streets were set to, of Jerusalem were set to flow with blood. And when they found the law, the king and the people repented. They apologised to God and they renewed the covenant. They followed that, that, that process. They re, saw the red saw the word of God, heard the word of God, became aware of sin, confessed and prayed, and renewed the covenant. There was a revival, a biblical version of revival, that turned Israel around. We've also got, in the time of the New Testament, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Acts, this, I can see the same model coming through. You've got... The disciples that have been with Jesus for the best part of three and a half years. And how cool would that be? But they still didn't get it. All the way through his ministry, they had the knives out. They're trying to backstab each other. They were trying to be the greatest. They were focused on themselves. And it took them seeing the word. Jesus said, uh, in the book of John, it says, in the beginning, the word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus was the Word. It took seeing the Word of God crucified on the cross and raised again for them to realise 
what they'd been doing wrong. They'd been rivals instead of his disciples. And we read in chapter 2, verse 1 of Acts, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in the one place. They'd been spending the last 10 days together, confessing their sins to each other, praying with the brothers, praying with the other disciples, asking Jesus to forgive them. You, you think about it. If you'd been with Jesus for three and a half years and you only got it right at the end, I am so sorry I didn't see this earlier, Lord. They were all together in one place. That doesn't mean they were just in one place. They now were finally in the one mindset. They were one group focused on the same thing, on Jesus, not focused on who would be the greatest. They, they saw the word of God crucified on the cross and raised to life. They became aware of their sin. They confessed and prayed and they renewed the covenant. There was revival. The Holy Spirit was poured out. We see this in other situations in the Bible without going in depth. We've got Daniel in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. He, he becomes aware that Jerusalem is... It's 70 years. Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. Why isn't it? My people are still a mess. They may be back in Jerusalem, but they are not following your Lord. So Daniel confesses and prays. We see this with Saul that became Paul on the road to Damascus. He meets, he sees the light. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He comes face to face with the word. He becomes aware of his sin. He spends the next two to three days not eating, not seeing, confessing his sin and praying, and eventually God sends Ananias over to actually renew the covenant. And at that moment, Saul became Paul. He became a new man, and there was revival in his life. This is a biblical model of revival, of renewing the connection with God. So, who cares about Nehemiah? How does Nehemiah and the children of Israel impact me today? Who cares? What impact does this have on Springwood? Why have I wasted the last few minutes of your life on this? Well, I think there are big impacts. So, let's, let's go personally. First of all, in my, in my time I spend with worshipping God, praying and reading the Bible every day... I get made aware of many things of where I'm stuffing up. I, became, I become aware of barriers between me and God. Because guess what? We all have them. And when I'm, trying, when I'm spending time wanting to connect with God, His Spirit makes me aware of the barriers in my life. And it's at that time... I apologise. Often it's day after day for the same thing. But I apologise for the things that I do that create a barrier. Now, why? Because in Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, I'm not sure where you are at with your journey with God, but I want to seek God and find him with all my heart. And I know I keep stuffing up. But guess what? That's not a bad thing. That shows me that I'm human and I need God. 
So I confess my sins there. But I want to tell you, I will mention one of the things that I continually find myself apologising to God for. And this may be relevant to you guys, it may not be. If I'm telling God, it's God's promise that I will seek him and find him when I seek him with all my heart. And I'm wanting to seek God and I run out of time to spend time with him. I don't have enough time to read as much as I wanted of the Bible that day. I feel like I'm rushing God. And I sit back and I think, I'm seeking you with all my heart because I managed to find a couple of hours to watch something, some sport today. That's something I find myself regularly apologising and repenting to God for because I want to make him number one in my life, but I, I find so many things I love doing. I can make time for those things, but I so often struggle to make time for God. Is that something you can relate to? In Joel chapter 12, why is this relevant? Joel chapter 12, God says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, mourning, rend your heart, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and passionate, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding with love, and he relents from sin and calamity. Rend your heart. Apologize. I find myself apologizing for the areas where I don't prioritize God. And I challenge you in this space. This is something. Think about it. Is this what God is asking you to do? Do you have priorities in your heart that are higher than God? Are you wanting to make God number one? Rend your heart. If we go, oh, that's not Joel chapter 12, by the way, it's Joel chapter 2. That's my dyslexia kicking in. On, uh, if we go later on in the chapter of Joel, this is really significant, the end of that chapter, and afterward I will pour, your, pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. This is built on the foundation of rending your heart, seeking God with all your heart, and acknowledging where you're not prioritising number one. What do we say? The word of God, we become aware of sin. If we choose to confess our sin and pray, he will revive us and we can renew the covenant. This is the promise of the latter rain. It's in the same chapter where we're asked to um, rend our hearts and confess to God. Are you wanting to make God number one in your life? Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. When God makes us aware of the the barriers we create in our life, when we confess them to God and we ask for forgiveness, he says, he will forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But guess what? He puts the Spirit in us. And why? The Spirit is the thing that helps us 
to follow his, follow his decrees and be careful to keep his laws. This is in no way... I'm not talking works here. I'm not talking about I need to be good enough. I'm talking about acknowledging where the barrier is and God will do the difference. Acknowledge and he will change you. Finally, last verse we've got today. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. So how does the story of Nehemiah and all the Israelites confessing their sins and repenting of everything they had done. It relates to us because when we become aware personally of where we're creating barriers in our lives, when you are aware, God wants you to confess those sins. But see what he's saying here? It needs to happen daily. It's not easy to admit when you stuff up. I stuff up all the time. We all do. It's not easy. It's not pleasant. But that is part of the cross that Christ wants us to take up daily. Why? Because when we are made aware of the word of God, we become aware of sin. We become aware of the barriers in our life that separate us from God. If we want to remove those barriers, if we want to be connected with God, we need to confess those things and pray and God will revive us and renew the covenant in our lives. In your life. It's not my decision. I can't choose that for you. But if you want to find, seek God and find him, you need to seek him with all your heart. And that involves admitting to him when you create barriers in your life. I need to admit to him this thing.